Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Back Matter podcast, I'll be talking with Marie Force. Marie is a New York Times bestselling author of contemporary romance novels. She's the author of a number of series, including the Fatal series from Harlequin and the Gansett Island series, which she published independently. Her books have sold more than 6 million copies, and amongst her other accomplishments, including being a popular conference speaker and presenter, she has been nominated twice for the Romance Writers of America's Rita Award for Romance Fiction. Marie is also spearheading the Indie Author Support Network for Indie Publishers, encouraging people in the flourishing community of Indie Publishing to get together and organize in an effort to promote their interest as a group. In this interview, we're going to talk about Marie's career, the hard and to many people surprisingly complex work and entrepreneurialism that's essential for flourishing as an indie author, and we'll focus on the inspiration behind the Indie Author Support Network, what it aims to do, and how you can join. You can find out more about the network at IndieAuthorSupportNetwork.com, and you can follow the network on Twitter at Author underscore Indie. You can also follow Marie on Twitter at Marie Force, and you should check out her excellent website at MarieForce.com. So thank you, Marie, for being on the Lean Pub Back Matter, Back Matter podcast. Thanks for having me, Len. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I know you've written about this extensively on your website, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and... Uh, a little bit about your career path on the way to becoming a, an author. Sure. Um, so I'm from the Newport, Rhode Island area, which is um, northeast United States, and um, grew up in this area, lived here my whole life until um, I married a guy in the Navy, ended up going to Spain, Maryland, Florida, before coming back to Rhode Island um, almost 16 years ago now. And uh, so I've... Um, We've got two kids who are 22 and 19, and one's out of college, one's in college. And I've always been a professional writer. I started out as newspapers and then into corporate communications for 16 years and uh, always editing, writing. It's the only, like I joke, it's the only thing I'm good at. Uh, my, my one talent uh, is able to put a sentence together, and it's gotten me through uh, a lot of career uh, alterations. And then later, I uh, always said I wanted to write fiction, but I had never really gotten around to doing it. And uh, my parents were very uh, into me doing it. They thought it would be because I was always a big storyteller. Um, always like I couldn't just come home and say, Oh, something happened at school today, I had to put my own spin on it. And they could tell I was doing it because I would get very animated. So um, I think the storytelling thing goes way back in that regard. Uh, so they were always very keen on me doing it. And then my mom got sick, you know, fatal illness, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that kind of gives you a kick to get moving. I was 38 years old. And it's like, okay, someday is here now. Um, I wrote and finished my first book, Treading Water, in May of almost exactly, what's today, the 17th. Um, so tomorrow will be 12 years since I finished my first book in the basement of my former house. Um, and I've written 67 since then. And as of the end of May sold 7 million. So, um, so we, um, you know, it's kind of been kind of a crazy little path. Um, I was very rejected at first. Nobody wanted my first six books. I sold my seventh one to a small publisher. Nothing really happened. It was kind of like that, like little steps forward, nothing really happened. And then, um, in 2011, 2010, I started indie publishing in 2011, I started indie publishing the Gansett Island series and that series took off like nobody's business and has now sold over 3 million, uh, books and book 19 in that series is out later this month with absolutely no end in sight. <laughs> and then the fatal series has done really well. I've been writing both of those series for 12 years. And then I have three others that I'm working on at the same time. So three other series that I, um, contribute to on a regular basis. So, um, 
the indie publishing thing has been really, really good to me. Um, I've also been traditionally published the entire time uh, for the last 10 years consistently. Um, and I have my 13th book coming out from Harlequin um, at the end of this uh, year. So, um, you know, just kind of doing everything involved with publishing. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that great summary and congratulations on the milestones. Um, Thank you. Going back closer to the beginning, uh, you mentioned that you first worked in journalism and from your profile online, I saw that you studied journalism and political mm -hmm. science. And I was wondering if you, if you were starting out now, do you think you would study journalism? Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Because if for no other reason, then I really feel like journalism training taught me how to write. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a very, uh, I like to say like a lean, mean, economical writer. Like I try not to, there's not a lot of extra crap in my books, <laughs> um, that has to then be edited out. Um, I, and, and that comes directly from the journalism training where they teach you, you know, the KISS, keep it stupid, keep it simple, stupid. And, um, you know, that's like, if you want great training, work for a small community newspaper where you have, a, you're understaffed, underfunded, um, you know, the demands are enormous and you're writing, you know, six or eight articles a day sometimes, you know, and, and you really do just kind of like figure out how to tell a story in a very clear, concise way. And I, I think that that training was absolutely essential to everything that I've done since then. Are you at all concerned about the current state of affairs with respect to journalism and local journalism and things like that? It's a debate that I, I like to follow. Yeah, I, you know, I have a lot of opinions about a lot of things. I, I do try to keep all of that out of my author life because, um, you know, I try to keep, keep the perspective that I'm in the entertainment business and, um, my, my readers don't really care what I think about, you know, politics and all this stuff, but I am concerned about the propensity of, um, fake news to be overtaking the facts. And I do think that it's a very clear cut threat to our democracy. And I will say that to anybody who asks me, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of things that are happening in our country right now that are, um, disturbing and alarming and, you know, and the threat to the free press is definitely one of them. And um, so I think it's, you know, I, I can't imagine what what has to be going on in journalism schools across the country right now. And my son is actually studying communications and hopes to go into sports broadcasting. And he's getting a lot of um, of information about that from his professors right now. And, um, you know, I just really think there's never been a more important time in, in a, for journalism to be thriving than right now. One of the things I really liked about that answer was um, that you didn't um, necessarily connect studying journalism in university to um, uh, ex exclusively the utility of doing that to getting a job in journalism. You said it helped you become the writer that you are today. Right. And, you know, and I've talked to I've, I'm still close with one of my uh, journalism professors from college. And one of the things I've said to her over the years is I think we put too much emphasis on the, the, the media jobs and the, um, you know, the, the newspapers, the radio, the TV, like that was the focus. You were one of those three, um, when we were in school. And one of the things that like so many of my friends that I graduated with have gone on to do so many different cool things. I mean, one of them is the, um, the media director for an, a women's NBA team. And another one, you know, works for, um, you know, um, They've, they've worked for nonprofits. I worked for nonprofit for 16 years um, as the communications director. And all of that journalism training came into play every single day. But like when we were in school, it was like newspaper, TV, radio, boom, 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 you know. So, you know, it's um, it's nice to know that like that skill that you have can be so universally used um, across a, a number of different areas. One um, part of your biography that uh, 
touched me was you talk about um, the time when your husband was working on uh, an aircraft carrier, the USS John F. Kennedy. Um, and one, one time for another podcast, I interviewed someone who uh, was on the uh, being on the aircraft side of things. But I wanted to ask you what it's like to be the spouse who's on the on the land when their spouse is on the aircraft carrier kind of things. I mean, because I think at the time you were working in your career in, in communications, corporate I communications, was. and you had yeah. you had two kids that, you know, they were on land with you, not on the boat with your husband. Um, uh, what was that like? About um, hiring a baby shark to have them come in, because I worked from home uh, while he was deployed and on the Kennedy. Um, I worked for the same company I worked for in DC. They kept me on um, when we moved to Florida. And so I was doing it all from home, and I had two kids, and my husband was deployed. And I used to think Navy wives were kind of grumpy. And then I realized uh, I had it kind of easy for this first six years when he was in office jobs. And then this, like, totally sucked but um I hired the babysitter and the kids know I'm in the office so they're like banging on they were little you know they were like um oh they were like six new and and brand new and three years old when we first were moved to Florida and he was on the Kennedy and so then the first, next three years we we were in that in that boat and so I hired the babysitter they know I'm in there so there's no nothing getting done so the next day I have her come again and I tell them oh mom's leaving I'll see you later and you guys be good and blah 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 and I walked out of my house walked around to the back of my house and crawled in the window to go to work <laughs> in my office so I mean it, those those years are like such a blur to me now because um it was intense and one thing I do remember about when he was on the Kennedy was on 9-11. Um, he was in the cryptology community. So he was on the receiving end of all the message traffic that came in. And one of the most important, like incredible moments in his entire career in the Navy was when um, the Kennedy was sent to New York to protect the U.S. motherland. And in 20 years of in, in, being in the Navy, I mean, it still gives me chills. He retired a short time after that. Um, he had never seen a message like that. So um, they were going to uh, maneuvers in Puerto Rico that day, and they were redirected to the New York uh, shoreline after the attacks um, in the city. And uh, we found out about it on the CNN crawler. That's how we found out that the Kennedy was being sent to New York. So and all you can think of is if people are, you know, bombing the U.S., like what a sitting duck, a, a big U U.S. Um, aircraft carrier would be sitting off the shore. You know? So those were, you know, there was it was. For the most part, like we didn't have a lot of stress when, you know, of those um, of like worrying about something happening to them while they were at sea. But that was that was a, a definite exception that day. But those, yeah, those were crazy years. I don't even I, I don't even remember a lot of it. <laughs> how long how long is the person on the boat at a time? I've heard, you know, three months, six months. The, mo the longest was six, six months. He did one six-month deployment, um, and this was the third time he'd been on a carrier in his career, but it was the first time he was on a carrier with, with a family. Um, so th they were in a very intense deployment cycle while he was on the ship. So um, I want to say, like, out of three years, he was probably deployed for about 20 months of it, So which was brutal, <laughs> with a brand-new baby who didn't sleep for the first 18 months, and he's the one that's a freshman and will just finish his freshman year of college now. And then the other one had been with Daddy during the day until Daddy goes on an aircraft carrier and, like, disappears, you know. So, um, yeah, he worked nights uh, when we were in uh, the D.C. area. So she was – they were, like, constant companions, and then he, like, disappears. So it was – those were crazy years. They really were. And, and like, my dad would say to me, like, when are you going to start writing that book? And I would just look at him like, <laughs> crazy? And he goes, well, what are you doing from 3 to 6 a.m.? I was like, oh, yeah. So my parents were very uh, eager to see me 
to do, take this path that I ended up taking. And my father has um, um, father of the of the author business cards that he gives out to everyone um, and tells people things that he shouldn't tell them, like you know, guess how much she paid for our house and things like. That. <laughs> He's in his eighties. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got to, I want, I want to ask you about the writing end, but I've got one more. Um, you just reminded me of a, a very old personal memory I had, which was that my dad once, when I was uh, very young, went up, up north um, in the province of Saskatchewan in Canada to do scouting for a provincial park. Uh, and he was gone for about two whole weeks. Uh, and when he came back, I could barely recognize him. And apparently my, bro my brother and I kind of ran to the door, daddy's home, and then he appeared with a beard and we ran away. At, yeah, my kid, he had to, was... he had to, they had to like, especially the, my younger one, cause he was like, you know, he was a baby. And so every time daddy came home, it was like, who's that, you know, <laughs> which was very hard on my husband. So yeah, it, it all seems like a very long time ago now. He'll be out for 17 years this year and he retired at 40. So he's still young, you know? So yeah. And so but... your, your first novel, um, you were basically kind of visited in your imagination by a character from it long before you began writing it. Is that, is that correct? I was wondering it if you could talk true. a little bit about that. Yeah, I was having conversations with Jack Harrington for years before I wrote the first word. And um, it was an architect whose um, wife is injured in a very mysterious accident. And, you know, I wanted to kind of like, you know, put him through the ringer. Because I, I, the, the thing I loved about writing that, that book, and I still love about that book, is that it, he's a 43 year old guy. And I think by that age, most of us feel like we know each ourselves pretty well. We know what we would do in certain circumstances. And then you're presented with something that's so far outside your realm of, of comprehension. And then suddenly all the rules that you've lived by for all your life are suddenly no longer in play. And, um, you know, his, he's told by doctors that his wife is never going to recover. He has three teenage daughters he has to contend with. And um, who have mostly been brought up by their mother at that point, because he's the one out, you know, running a business and earning a living and has to become a custodial parent to three teenage girls who are traumatized after witnessing the accident that injured their mother. And then he like a year later meets somebody at work and, you know, he's not looking for it. He's not on match.com, you know, his, you know, so I loved presenting him with that dilemma of, you know, here's this guy who's the most solid, one of his friends describes as the most solidly married human being ever, who's now in the state of limbo at 44 years old. And, you know, what do you do? So, and I really treading water is like, I still look back at that as like that dilemma of what do you do when you think you know yourself and then there's something comes along that makes you question everything. Um, I loved writing that. I loved writing the, the conflict of it. And then I ended the book 12 years ago. No, it's actually 13. God, I can't even do basic math. 13 years ago tomorrow with, it was 155,000 overwritten words. It was a beast. I threw everything in there, which I've never done again in almost 70 books. I've never done it, made all the mistakes that I made in that one. And then when I finally published that on my own, seven years later, um, it was the same exact book at 92,000 words. So I learned all those lessons, you know, of what not to do in treading water. But um, it's still a reader favorite. It's my most frequently asked question is when is there going to be a fifth book in that series, which there is going to be one more book in that series. They've worn me down. So um, <laughs> there is going to be one more book in that series. So, but yeah, so it was just a really crazy process of the, sitting down and actually doing it for the first time. And so you began by uh, self-publishing, but you said you eventually got a book picked up. What was that process like for you learning about how to approach publishers? How did you go? So I actually that? was traditionally published first. Oh, you were? Oh. Um, 
Yes, I was traditionally published in 2000. In 2010, I was a debut author with um, Harlequin's Karina Press um, with my Fatal series, which is now with HQN. And that's the one that's going to be um, book 13. So I've always been without, uh, without fail under contract to one publisher or another. Um, and right now I'm currently working with two. Um, I'm with Harlequin still, um, which is under HarperCollins now. And then Kensington is doing a, um, a historical romance series for me. And they're also bringing out my Gansett Island paperbacks, which is really exciting. So um, I've always worked with publishers. But then, you know, there was a lot. I had a lot of books already written. And we shopped, you know, the Gansett Island series, I love to say, was rejected, thankfully, by every publisher in romance, which was actually a huge break, a lucky break, um, with hindsight, a very lucky break. Because if any of those no's had been yes, um, I probably would have settled for a really crappy deal. And um, another publisher would still own the rights to those books. And I would, you know, let's face it, if you sell 3 million books of a self-published series, that is going to change your life in ways that you cannot begin to imagine. And, and it has, I mean, I, it's just been, it's been unbelievable what, what has happened because of that. And so I think all the time, like, oh, thank God I got all those rejections, which were so hard to take at the time. I mean, it was awful. Like some of the people that rejected it were like, if they had said yes, I would have been like, oh, I would have been like almost embarrassed to say I was published by them, you know? So um, it was it was crazy the way it all worked out. You know, sometimes I think my mom was up there going, just hold out. It's all going to be good. And one of my favorite one of my favorite quotes about it all too is that luck is is the convergence of preparation and opportunity. And I was preparing for this lucky opportunity for years without even knowing it. So um, I was ready when when the self publishing doors opened. I was in a very lucky position. It's funny in the in the startup world, there's a saying about an overnight success that was years in the making. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, a ten year overnight success story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about this. The um, when you say you know you get you were getting rejected, I just a little bit about the mechanics of that. Like, were, did you have multiple kind of submissions out at the same? Oh, time? I have them somewhere. Let me see if I can pull them out for you. Oh, I carry do. them around with. Um, I'll show you because Len and I are on Skype, so he can see them. But yeah, here they all are. I saved oh, wow. them all. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, funny story. I was at a seminar once and, and I had them with me. I was like, I love to show authors like, yeah, my career's going really well, but look at where it started. <laughs> um, so I, and I forgot them at the podium and my niece who works for me, she went running back to get them and they had been put in a garbage can and she had to go like practically dumpster diving to get them back. She goes, those cannot be thrown out. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, I've heard of I've heard about people uh, using rejections for wallpaper as kind of inspiration. And oh, I could cover yeah. my whole office. I I prefer to cover my office with pictures of the bestsellers. So <laughs> I can see that that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> it reminds me. I mean, you know, of course, uh, you know, the history of writing is full of stories about you know William Golding, for example. I believe set, sent the Lord of the Flies to like twenty four publishers before it got yeah. accepted somewhere. Uh, but yeah. one, one of the really interesting things, of, and you know, of course, you know, Walt Whitman self-published, so did Nietzsche, you know, um, uh, yeah. but, but um, uh, one of the really interesting things that about your story is that uh, because of the, because of the way you can be a success now in self-publishing, getting, getting rejected actually turned out to be the best thing that could happen for you because oh, you, could, totally you could go did. and sell it on your own. And how did you, yes. how did you do that? I mean, so for people listening who are like, what, what? How do I do that? What did what did you do? Did you just just go on KDP or did you do? More I did that? first. All there was was KDP. Um, I don't know why it just switched over so that it's only you and not me. But <laughs> um, 
so I was on, there was only KDP at the time. I didn't, there was no option, um, to publish anywhere else. Um, I was there when uh, Nook Press came along. I was there when iBooks came along. I was there when Kobo started up. Um, but so I did just go to, um, I had all these books written. I had all these readers from the early books saying, Hey, I would love to read more of your stuff. And then I had, you know, publishers saying, Oh, well, um, I can't sell that book. And for a long time, it made me like wonder, like, what the heck does that mean? Because later I realized what they meant was the distributors didn't want that book. So, um, if the distributors don't want it, like those are the publisher's customers. So a lot of people don't realize that readers are not the customers of publishers. Distributors are, and they're the ones that put books on shelves and, and they put books into stores and, and they're the ones that kind of govern, you know, what gets published. And so, um, I didn't understand that at the time. And it took me a long time to understand what I was being told when somebody would say, Oh, I can't sell that book. I'm like, but wait, I can, you know? So when, when this opportunity came along, I was like, you know, go direct to the readers, sign me up, you know, like, absolutely. So, um, I had a, the biggest concern that I had at the time was I was under a uh, contract to two publishers uh, at the end of 2010, when I had books coming out in early 2011, and nobody could tell me, not a, in, um, an IP lawyer, not my agent, nobody could tell me if I was going to get sued for doing this. Um, so I was very quiet about it at first. I was very like, okay, so um, I put them up. Uh, the first two books were single titles. They weren't part of a series. I put one up in November um, and one in December of 2010. And I didn't like publicize them on Facebook or do anything other than just make, put them on sale. And I left them to just, you know, and then I had the one publisher book came out January 3rd and the other publisher book came out February 1st. And on February 1st, the book that came out that day, um, the publisher of that book put an earlier book of mine with them on sale for free, which was the first time free really like was just like unbelievable. I mean, my numbers went crazy that week. All myself, like I had sold like something like maybe 300 copies of my indie books, the two indie books at that point. And then I sold 10,000 in February of that month. And then, you know, my numbers kind of went crazy and they've never really come back down, which is, you know, amazing when you think about it. Like that was, um, you know, six years ago and seven years ago. See, I can't do basic math <laughs> seven years ago. And it's been like gangbusters ever since. And, um, then in April, May and June of 2011, I published the first three Gansett Island books, you know, three months in a row. And it's ironic that this year we're doing the same exact schedule, April, May, June for the, the paperbacks, um, which are going to be out in stores, are out in stores now. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a full circle moment that the mass market paper is coming out this, at the same exact schedule as the um, eBooks did way back when. But, you know, that series has just, it changed everything. And then um, it was something like 80,000 uh, ebooks for 2011. And next thing you know, I'm given my, uh, notice and my day job, which I had expected to keep for another 10 years. Cause I, that, I had that 2021 20, date in my head. Cause my youngest would finish college that year. So, you know, I mean, like it was like may, whatever, 2021, I can quit my job, but, um, it just, it was crazy. I mean, it's just the way it all happened. And, and then, um, my, my good friend who I worked with at the day job, I kept joking with her that she was going to be my assistant someday. And we joked that we had a shed in our backyard she could live in and we would provide Wi-Fi and, you know, like, 
and by the end of 2012, I was hiring her and she's, she's worked for me for five and a half years now. And then we, I have three other employees that, that, you know, I figure it can either go to taxes or it can go to them. So yeah, was <laughs> I, actually, them. I was going to ask you about that. So, um, yeah, you said earlier when you were talking about your schedule, uh, you said we, um, and I know from your website that you have a team of people that you work with. Um, I do. And I wanted to ask you about that because I think a lot of people often have a view of an author being, uh, someone who is kind of isolated and, uh, you know, ha- has a lot of, it, it's sort of funny that like the, the typical idea would be that a, an author is someone who's protected from the business side of things by the publisher who does all that for them. Right. Uh, but the publisher is doing all that it has to have the moxie and has to have the, the energy and has to do the hard work. And so when you're an independent author or well, a hybrid author, I guess, like you are, right. um, the indie part is a business. It's a small business and it's, it really and it's is. one that it you is. run and you've got employees and you have to do the taxes and all that. And I mm-hmm. wanted to ask you, what, what do you have your employees doing? So um, what you said about it being a small business, it, it is that, and it is also a 24 seven, 365 international business, which is something that I don't think a lot of people realize. Like, you know, we're dealing with people like I, I was communicating with a reader in South Africa earlier today. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a world, it's a world business. It's an international business. It's not just like, you know, um, what we do in the U S and Canada, but it's, it's all over for one thing. And then my employees, like I have my whole life set up so that really I focus almost exclusively on the writing. And, um, people say to me all the time, like, Oh, where do you find time to write? I'm like, Oh, where do I find time to write? Like that comes before anything, you know, like I, I am working on two books right now and um, in the month of, I'm having this fantastic month of May where I've had done 46,000 words on two different books in, in May. And I mean, like, that's like, that's the bread and butter of the business. I mean, without that, there is no business. So um, where do I get the time? Like that's comes first. And so um, my employees basically run my business. Um, you know, I have a COO who oversees everything. And then I have a CFO who is our, you know, financial person. And she deals with all the taxes and the, she keeps, she's the one who emails me and says, Hey, as of March 31st, you've sold 7 million bucks. Like, that's how I know that it's because I've got somebody keeping track of that. My husband got laid off from his job, um, almost five years ago. And like, to me, I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, so, um, I put him to work. And, you know, he kind of takes care of everything else. So, like, I'm, like, in this bubble where, like, all I do is write and um, take care of, you know, obviously I tend to the business, the social media. I do all the social media and the um, email stuff myself. Um, I feel like it's very important that the readers, when they think they're talking to me, they're actually talking to me. Um, And I think that there's been a lot of benefit to that um, personal touch. And they feel like they know me. And I think that that's really important. So other than that... And obviously dealing with, you know, things like the Indie Author Support Network and um, running an author support network on Facebook for um, 7,000 authors now, Um, you know, those things keep me busy during the day. But um, the focus is always, always on the on the writing. There's literally nothing comes before that. Um, Except coffee. Coffee does. Of course. (laughs) Um, uh, I've got a bit of an uh, in the weeds indie publishing question for you. Sure. uh, I, love the <laughs> there, I guess I guess there are two. Um, one is when you're interacting with readers, how how does that happen? Do you do you give out your email address? Yeah, uh, 
I do. Promiscuously, like it's just all over the place. I'm that's, very promiscuous. Yeah, that's, I just I wanted to say it's it, that's a really interesting thing that you say that because I think a lot of people are shy about their email address, and I've encountered this doing various different projects in the past where there's there seems to be a positive correlation between the openness with which someone treats their email address and their you know to put it in crude terms success. Uh, people who hide their email addresses tend to be the ones who are like why isn't why is nothing ever taking off for me. Um, and there's, I don't know what the connection is there, but there's, well, they hide behind a lot of things. Like they'll tell, those are the same people that will tell you they hate Facebook. And I always feel like saying, I'm sorry for you. If you're an author and you hate Facebook, that that's sorry. I'm sorry for you. You know, I mean, Facebook is where the readers are and Twitter is where the readers are and Instagram. I mean, like those are like free tools that authors years ago would have killed for. And email is another one. Uh, remember the days when you've all heard the stories where like, you know, the early authors would have to like wait for letters to come from their publishers. Like they were, I mean, like, thank God those days are over. But I don't think the indie revolution could have happened if, in those days. It, it just wouldn't have. It was fueled by email. And, you know, um, we are such like, you know, talk about promiscuous. We're promiscuous about our, our mailing list. Like we all want you know, more people to join us. And that's direct contact with our customers, which is hard to come by when you're dealing with retailers. So, um, you know, those are the, we're so lucky to be working in this, in this modern era of incredible technology, although we are beholden to it. Like I was out to lunch today with my, my son, my father, my cousin, and I'm like, don't touch the phone. Don't touch the phone, leave the phone in the pocket. And I mean, I have to physically tell myself, don't look, you know, (laughs) So, and how do you deal with negative uh, contact with people? Like when you know, because that's one of the one of the famous things about or infamous things about things like Twitter is that you know sometimes it, you encounter the trolls that can happen in yeah, email I mean, as well. They're out. Yes. All right. So you know, block is your favorite thing on social media. If somebody's going to give you a hard time, like take them out of your social life. I mean, like just like you would if you know, somebody was going to hassle you in person, like, would you go out to dinner with them? No. So why do you have to still be friends with them on Facebook? You don't. So I mean, I just like, I'm I'm a very positive person. And I don't do drama. Like I'm very like, when I hired each of my colleagues who are, of course, obviously, were my friends, and in some cases, family members, (laughs) I told them, I said, I'm you guys know me, I don't do drama. So if you're going to do drama and have girl fights and all that stuff, keep it far away from me, because I don't want to deal with it. Like, I just I'm very I don't do drama of any kind. So I don't do passive aggression. And so like, if you're going to come at me, like I'm probably going to ignore you for one thing. (laughs) I mean, and I try to like, I always say to people too, like if I'm happy with my books, I'm pleasing my first customer is myself. And so hopefully everybody else will be pleased too, but you're never going to make everybody happy, not in a million years. So giving up that goal of, you know, 100% five-star reviews is just, it's very freeing, you know? (laughs) So, I mean, I I really just frankly don't care if somebody doesn't like what I'm doing or they're, they don't like me. I'm like, well, sorry, you know, I can only do me. (laughs) I Uh, mean, you just let some of that go. I mean, it's going to, there is negativity. Of course, there's always going to be, but I I try to put out the positive and I find that most of what comes back to me is, is equal to that. So that's a, uh, that's a fantastic answer. Thank you very much for that. I think that will, that will give me a little bit of inspiration the next time I encounter some negativity because I can, yeah, I, it's, I, so I, like, it's, it's so easy to, things personally, you know? yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's too easy to, to engage in. And, and my, Julie, my assistant always says to me too, like, she can't believe some of the stuff people will say to me, you know, over Facebook or, you know, in an email. And, and to me, it's just like, it's that anonymity that we can all hide behind in the keyboards that make us all very brave. And, and in some cases, very rude <laughs> about things that we would never say to somebody's face, you know, and 
So but you guys just you can't take it on. I mean, like it's that's like obviously that's not my problem. If you're gonna like if, if somebody who's gonna come at you and say something really nasty, like you're not the problem, you know. <laughs> like you know, like they've got other problems besides the fact that they don't like your books. So <laughs> yeah, I think one one thing I found is that um, often I, I would say like nine times out of ten, someone who sends an angry email regrets it basically the moment they send it. Um, yeah, and a polite reply often uh, elicits an apology. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been tempted a couple times and I have done it, um, to say, are you having a bad day? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Did you skip breakfast? Like, I don't know. And like, of course I write sexy romance. So there's a lot of commentary about that. Um, which is just like, you know, I, we're, every, people in the U S are very juvenile in, in some cases and their, um, approaches to all things, you know, related to sex. And like, I, and I love to tell people like when they come at me, you know, they'll say something like, you know, about my books and I'll just be like, you know, you too are the result of a sex act. And that usually ends the conversation <laughs> rather <laughs> abruptly because <laughs> nobody wants to think about their parents in that context. You know? so, yeah. Yeah. So. See, that, uh, before I get on to my, move on to my second in the weeds question, actually, I did have another one, which was that you uh, didn't start out writing erotic fiction, but you did start doing that. If I um, understand so, correctly. well, so my, um, my books have always been very sexy. Um, I would say my heat level is on a scale of one to five is probably most of them are four. Um, but I have, I did add a, an erotic romance series, um, called quantum, um, in 2015 and it's been, been very popular and I've really enjoyed writing it. I'm writing the second to last book now and I'm going to do eight total and the readers are bummed that there's not going to be more, but I feel like I've kind of done what I wanted to do with that series and I have other things I want to do. So that's the only reason why, you know, I would end it, but I really have enjoyed writing it. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, it's all, it's just, you got to write what you want and not worry about what people are going to say. And I write under my real name too, which is another whole issue. I mean, everybody thinks that my name has to be a pen name because, force, you know, but it's actually my married name. I married well in the name department. And fortunately, my husband's siblings have always been very supportive of my career. And I like to think that my late in-laws would be too, because they were very supportive of me. So, um, but you know, you just gotta, if you're going to write sexy romance under your real name, you have to own it. Like you can't be like, you know, a wilting flower about it. (laughs) And my kids have been very, they're very, they're very confident, you know, they, they, they can handle it. And, they've had a few things said to them here and there. And like one of them, my older one had somebody say to her, um, you know, some crack about what I write. And she came right back and said, yeah, my mom's books are paying for my college. What's your plan? You know? So, and I was so proud of that response, (laughs) you know, like not being a jerk, but just be like, yeah, well, you know, this is the reality of it. And so, I mean, people will say what they're going to say and, um, you just, you gotta own it. You know, you can't be like, so many people are like, like this about it. Oh my God, like what you write. I'm like, yep, I write it. I love it. I own it. (laughs) My readers love it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean that I, I, we could have, I think an entire, uh, uh, interview about, um, uh, that subject, uh, the way that, you know, sex is this everyday part of our lives one way or another. And yet it's something that, you know, is often taboo. Yeah. It's like, people are so like, they're such babies about it. (laughs) And it's like, I don't know. I I think it was really interesting to be like, especially like going back to 2012 when the 50 shades craze was happening. And, um, like everyone I knew was reading those books and they were like, 
have you like, and I'm like, I haven't read them, but I've been reading that for years. I mean, you know that that's not new, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like that was the best part of the whole thing to me. Like there was like this revelation to so many people that this genre existed. And I'm just like, and it was really good for those of us who were already writing romance, that there was such a craving for more after that. Um, And I do think that that's a big part of the reason why the indie uh, revolution and romance really did so well is because there was such a craving after the Fifty Shades books first came out for more, more, more. Where can I get more of this? You know, and um, it was very good time to be in the romance. It continues to be. Um, but people are so, oh, they're just babies about it, you know? <laughs> Actually, that, so that leads me to another question, um, which is, uh, do you think that um, ebooks played a big role in uh, the development of the self-publishing kind of community and in particular with erotic fiction. Absolutely. So the, you know, I, when I do, um, when I do like uh, keynotes and stuff for writing groups, one of the things I tell them is that, and when the Kindle came out in 2007, we knew it was going to revolutionize the way we read, but I don't think anybody at that time really expected it to revolutionize the way we publish too, which, um, you know, this all, and, and I am, you know, as even as part of the Indie Author Support Network, um, very grateful to KDP for the opportunities that they have given us. I mean, look at, I'm sitting in my house right now, looking out at a beautiful view of, of water. Uh, I got my nice, lovely pool. I mean, all of that is because of KDP. Okay. And, and then later iBooks and Nook and Kobo and Google and, you know, foreign opportunities and audio and fill in the blank, you know, all the other things that came afterwards, but it all began with KDP. And, um, yes, there are ups and downs in in the author relationship with KDP. And, um, but in the end of the day, I mean, like we're all, we're having these conversations because they came first and, you know, and my appreciation for the changes that, that were made in my life. Um, you know, not that there was anything wrong with my life to begin with, but you know, it sure is like delightful to be able to, uh, pursue the career that you've always wanted and to have actual readers and opportunities that were not available to me prior to this. Um, not at this level anyway, um, you know, and it all goes back to, to ebooks and, um, and the Kindle and it's all began there, um, as for indie publishers. So I just think there's so many positive things that we could say about, you know, ebooks and the changes that they made in our business and our lives. Um, one of the things that it always amuses indie authors is when we see the statistics come out that, um, ebook sales are down and it makes us laugh because nobody is counting the indie sales. <laughs> so how do you know that? <laughs> so, I mean, we crack up like, I don't know if it's quarterly or biannually or what it is, but when those reports come out, like, Oh, you know, another report of our ebook sales are down. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I had an article in TechCrunch a couple of years ago now, um, called the dark matter of the publishing industry, um, where I use the dark matter metaphor to talk about exactly that, exactly that idea. Um, uh, so yeah, to anyone listening, don't worry, lean, or sorry, uh, e- ebook sales are not down. No, um, they're not. And like, there's a massive element, a massive element that is not being counted. And that's every single independently published book that's published in the world is not counting, is not being counted when we're hearing that ebook sales are down, what you're hearing is that traditional published ebook sales are down. And that is possibly attributable to the fact that they are often extremely 
high priced compared to what the indie authors are offering, which I know is, you know, a bone of contention with traditional publishers and, you know, what the indie authors are doing. And, um, and I get that, like, we don't need to charge nine ninety nine or twelve ninety nine in order to make a very decent profit. We can do a very decent profit at three ninety nine, four ninety nine, because we're getting seventy percent of the take, you know, so we don't need to be at nine ninety nine to make a decent profit. So um and I understand that there's a huge disparity between what the traditional publishers are charging for ebooks, what indie publishers are charging for ebooks, and that disconnect, you know, is there for sure. But to say that indie sales are I mean that ebook sales are down across the board without even a, a, an asterisk to say this information does not include any of the millions of indie published books is just you know it's 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 laughable to me. It's it's interesting. One actually one of the one of the inspirations behind this podcast is the the way that the the way the press writes about the book publishing industry I guess could be described as kind of chauvinistic. Um, that it's it's very it's very tilted towards one side of things. And so there was an article in the New York Times recently where someone said. Uh, it was talking about saving Barnes and Noble and stuff like that, and it said that fewer books are profitable now. Uh, which was, I mean, I, I, and I think I know where this person was coming from. They were probably having coffee with someone who, like, you know, works works at a prominent big five publisher and is saying that the old model they wouldn't they wouldn't have put it this way, but applying their model of giving someone like having some, things come through agents choose 10 or 15 projects for an imprint a year, give someone an advance, kind of see which ones start taking off, ignore the rest, and then pump all your money for promotions into the one that takes off. He's saying that that's the model that's maybe not as profitable as it used to be. Well, because competition is just astronomical now. I mean, you know, we're all competing for basic um, disposable income, you know, we're competing with streaming TV and movies and Netflix and all the different ways that people can expend their limited disposable income budget. And the competition for that money is greater than it has ever been. And not just in the publishing business, but across the board. I mean, like, look at all the different ways that we can consume media these days, like, you know, through Netflix subscriptions and, you know, who doesn't have Netflix and who doesn't have, you know, some people can't live without Hulu and some people can't live without some of the other, you know, Amazon prime and all the various ways. Like, so then that starts to erode at what people have available to spend on other stuff. And, you know, at the bottom of the pile sometimes is the old reading habit. (laughs) And then you add to that, okay, so the publisher is still putting out X number of books a year, but then you add to that, like the however many millions of independently published books that are being put out at a lower price point. And, you know, you've got a competition situation there that is not looking favorable to the higher priced product. And, um, I just like, you know, I think the, your view of how publishing is as an industry is determined by your, your point, where you're sitting in it, you know? And, um, I just had a whole argument with somebody today, like not a real argument cause I don't do arguing and I don't drama, but, um, about the, you know, blanket statement, how there's no money in traditional publishing for authors. And I'm just like, that's just frankly not true. Okay. I mean, maybe it was a bust for you, but to, to make that blanket statement that there's no money in traditional publishing for authors is just, it's not true. Okay. And, and I really, I, I reject those universal statements based on one person's experience because, you know, your experience with publishing depends on 
a lot of different things. And like, everybody's looking at it from sitting at looking in from a different angle. And, um, I have had made a very nice amount of money in traditional publishing and I have nothing bad to say about most of the experiences I've had in traditional publishing. It's been like, I like to say too, you know, you have a kind of a down month on the indie side and, Oh, here comes a nice big advance check from a publisher that doesn't suck, you know, (laughs) but granted those deals, you know, can be difficult to come by. They can be, you know, all these different things, but there is absolutely money to be made for authors in traditional publishing. Absolutely. And, um, and I've had very successful relationships with publishers and, and I'm, you know, I have nothing bad to say about the traditional side. Um, is it frustrating sometimes? Yes, because you have, you do have to give up control. And like when you're used to indie publishing and you do it all yourself, it can be hard to give up that control. But if you, you know, make the right deal for yourself, it can be very um, beneficial. So, um, you know, it just depends on your perspective and where you sit and like what your experience has been and, um, you can ask 10 different people the state of publishing and you'll get 10 different answers based on their personal experiences. Yeah, that actually so. maybe gives me an opportunity to circle back to my planned second in the weeds question. Oh, um, weeds. I forgot about the yeah, second one. Before, yeah, no, that's okay. This was a great, great conversation. Um, the uh, One of the debates, and people do come at this from their own perspective and, and often driven by their own experience with it, one of the questions that people often have in self-publishing or indie publishing is, should I put all my eggs in one basket or should I put my eggs in many baskets? Which is, um, you know, should I just sell my books on, say, KDP or should I sell them on all the things? Um, and so, you, you've taken a, a pretty clear position on that, but I was wondering if you could explain what, what that is. Yeah, so I'm a big believer in being everywhere the readers are, um, meaning all the different ebook platforms, audio, print, foreign. Um, if the readers, you know, I'm on Reddit, um, I mean, radish, I'm sorry. (laughs) And, um, all the different various ways to publish, um, you know, the readers are consuming books from a number of different way angles. And so to, to be everywhere the readers are, um, is it a bigger job to tend to multiple retailers than it would be to tend to one? Yes, it is. Does it take time to build a following on all the different retailers? Yes, it does. It's an individual effort on each one. Um, but I, it's been very beneficial to me. Um, I, you know, I could live on what I make at iBooks very comfortably and same with Nook, you know, and, um, not being on those platforms means I'm not have making that money, you know, so, uh, and reaching those readers and having those opportunities that I have had with those, um, very robust retailers. So, and also with Kobo, I've had a very successful relationship with Kobo, which is, um, you know, very big in Canada and, um, it's just been, you know, being part of those communities as well as the Kindle community has been very beneficial to me. And I, I, I am very, um, I would be very hesitant to do anything exclusive to any of them. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that great answer. Um, uh, I personally, I'm, I'm with you on that one. Um, not, not in terms of being a successful author, but just as the, the, the strategy and the idea of reaching as many readers as you can, wherever, wherever they happen to be. Right. Um, right. Uh, moving on to the uh, talk about the Indie Author Support Network, um, which is a project that you're spearheading. And you mentioned you've already had 7,000 people. Or I, th- I think it's 7,000 people sign up for the network or is it for your uh, Facebook group? For, no, for the Facebook page was in existence uh, for quite some time before we started to um, – we just kind of like – 
so the author support network has been around for um, a couple of years and we had, we have gone from 5,000 to 7,000 members since we started talking about the indie author support network. And so we just figured, you know, we've already got that group, so we're not going to reinvent another Facebook group, you know? So um, the indie author support network has about 1500 members who have joined um, and, and by joined there, you know, they fill out a form and we're asking them to donate 20 bucks towards um, startup costs, you know, like things like forming a website and getting an ebook, an email server and, you know, all the, you know, the, the admin stuff behind the scenes, um, possibly, um, some travel for some people to go to Seattle to meet with KDP and then, you know, stuff like that. So, um, we're not like calling it dues or anything like that because, you know, we're not officially a membership organization at this time. Um, and I don't know that we will be, but the whole point of it is to try to like bring together indie authors and to have somewhere for people to turn when things are crazy. Like, um, you know, there's been some issues with, um, with KU and with accounts being shut down. Um, and you know, we're talking to KDP about that and we're hoping to meet with them next month and to try to bring back some information, excuse me, to our members about like, you know, what's happening, what's being done. And when something goes wrong, especially when it affects a lot of different people and not just a few, like we're, I'm really trying to keep it macro versus micro. Um, you know, we've all got various complaints and issues and nits to pick with various retailers and this and that, but I prefer to focus on things like of universal concern. We've had conversations with iBooks about, you know, what had seemed to be an outbreak of piracy on the iBooks site. And, um, they've reported back that some progress has been made and I've seen a definite fall off on the people frantically contacting me looking for help, you know, with books that are popping up on iBooks when they're supposed to be exclusive to KDP and, or to KU. And, um, so things like that, like when there's a big issue that affects a lot of people, we need something in place that we can, you know, work together to kind of try to find a solution that affects everyone and not, and I'm really trying to stay away from the individual little issues that, you know, everybody has, um, here and there. So is the idea, is the idea that, you know, if, if, um, you're, if indie, indie authors are sort of all seeing the same problem and contacting these organizations separately, they might not get any attention. Whereas if they're being represented by say one or two people who can say, Hey, I represent this whole group of thousands of people, then it's right. Easy, and easy that is kind of the idea. Yes. And, and, you know, we think some of the other um, writing organizations have a lot of different um, audiences to serve. And, um, you know, there's the push pull always between the traditional side and the indie side. And, you know, if you give too much to this side, then that side feels, and I just sort of feel like there needs to be something that's just for indie authors. Um, cause I do think that indie experience is unique and, um, and we're all kind of in it on our own and there isn't any kind of central place where, you know, we kind of have a place to go to when something goes wrong. And, um, I have good relationships with all the retailers and, um, I'm actually, you know, putting my own reputation and, and, uh, and relationship with them in, into play with this. And so I'm being careful on how we approach. And, you know, I, like I said, you know, I don't do drama. So I, and I said that at the outset, like I told everybody that joined that, look at, I'm not, you're not going to, this isn't going to be a place, you know, nonstop bitch fest where we're constantly going after the retailers. And, you know, I want it to be collaborative and cooperative and positive. And, um, you know, that's the state, that's the strategy that I'm bringing to it. Now, obviously, um, when people are, we have an outbreak of people, you know, seemingly honest, hardworking authors having their, 
KDP accounts shut down and it's all happening at the same time, then there is a definite um, you know, swell of interest in what we're doing and we need help. And can somebody please talk to them and can somebody please help us? And, you know, we did that, um, last Friday, we did that. We, you know, went to them, we told them what was happening. We told them the kind of conversations that authors were having, which were very, uh, you know, I would think for them, not what they wanted authors to be talking about. And, kind of just made them aware of like, okay, quote unquote, word on the street is this, you know, and, and try to get some info from them about like what they were doing, what authors should do if they felt that they were unfairly, you know, impacted by this and to try to just give people like enough information that they can kind of take a breath and realize, okay, it's not just me. There's a lot of people involved in this. Obviously it's a bigger situation. They're working on it. Here's what we're doing. It's just like, I think there's comfort in that, you know, and, um, especially when we're all in this on our own. So, um, so far, you know, we're, that's the kind of stuff we're, we're doing. And, um, obviously we're all very busy, um, with our own stuff. And so it does become difficult (laughs) to kind of like, manage something so i'm trying to keep it very simple you know very simple it's interesting if as if i understand correctly one of the big problems that people have uh, particularly with i mean i guess it happens on ibooks as well but particularly what i sort of encounter is descriptions of what happens on amazon where basically um fraud starts to happen um they kind of ignore it until it becomes a big enough problem for them to deal with it and then sometimes what they do is they just nuke from orbit and then a lot of people get caught up in the uh, fallout from that and then need to get back, get, get their status reestablished or get back on their, the ranking list and stuff like that. Is yeah. It, is so that I, I don't think that they're, I don't think that it would be fair to say that they ignore fraud. Um, I think they are constantly um, working to ferret out, you know, the problem situations um, and, and, you know, they're reluctant to say too much about how or what they do because, you know, you don't want to be giving people a how-to kit on how to, you know, scam the system by saying, oh, well, we're doing this, this, and that. Um, In every conversation I've had with anyone from KDP, it has been conveyed to me that they are taking any kind of potential fraud and not potential, but actual fraud within, you know, KU very seriously. And, and they're working on it all the time. I mean, they, look at, they, they don't come to work in the morning and say, how can we, you know, mess with people? That's not like, you know, that's not who they are. It's not what they're about. I mean, look at the opportunities that they have given to authors, you know, it's just, but granted there are, there are issues, there are challenges they need to be addressed. They are working on it. Um, they have acknowledged like, you know, Hey, we could probably do better communicating, you know, when someone isn't working, we could probably improve, you know, the information that's going out to the community. And we're trying to give them a conduit back to the authors too, to say, Hey, you know, this is what's going on and, and everybody take a breath and hopefully by Monday we'll have, you know, so I think in that way too, that it's going to be beneficial to both sides because hopefully they'll be able to use our network to like get words out to authors quickly when they need to about, you know, a situation that might be going on. Um, so there's an organization that's been around in the United States for over a century now. It's changed names, um, but it's known as the Authors Guild. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you about that. Are you a member of the Authors Guild? No, I'm not. No. And what, no. what what's your opinion about, about them? I mean, I, I can say just to sort of say in advance, I mean, I don't know a great deal about the Authors Guild. Every Neither time, do I, every, truthfully. Yeah. I don't. Every, every time yeah, I, I just come across them... It, it I haven't had any contact. I haven't had any need. I just, I, I mean, I'm sure like, and I have heard of other authors having, 
you know, requested information and help from them and have gotten it. And I know that they have a good reputation. I just, I just really don't know anything about them. Truthfully, I haven't had any contact. Um, most of my author, you know, stuff, if you will, has been through the Romance Writers of America, which is, you know, the group that kind of, um, coordinates romance, the romance fiction end of the author spectrum. So, um, I just really haven't had a lot of, um, involvement with other organizations. Oh, that's really interesting. Cause one thing I was, I was curious about was with what did the indie author support network develop with a kind of explicit self-awareness, like the author's guild isn't addressing our needs. Um, no, it wasn't like, anything like yeah. that. No, it wasn't. It, and, and I mean, listen, there's all sorts of organizations out there that are, you know, the mystery writers and the, you know, this, that, and the other thing that are, there are all the authors in a genre. Okay. Like there's, and they, and all the different ways that they publish. And, and some of the organizations have struggled with, um, how to accommodate, you know, the indie authors and how to, how do we classify, you know, what's published and what is, you know, it's just all that nonsense that goes on where you have to try to like set basic, you know, standards for an organization. And so our thing is, is if you are independently published in any way, then we are, we want to be helpful to you. And, you know, um, there's no minimum income requirements. There's no, um, somebody actually emailed me and said, Hey, I'm small press published, but I'm really interested in what you guys are doing. Um, could I be a member? I said, you absolutely can be a member, but don't come to me in a year and ask me to take on small press issues. Cause that's not what we're about. You know, I think by keeping our focus very narrow and very, um, explicitly intended for one particular segment of the author experience, then we are more likely to be able to be effective, um, rather than trying to be all things to all people. Um, you know, obviously there is, um, tremendous need for the bigger organizations such as, you know, RWA stepped up big time, um, for the recent, um, trademark issue where an author uh, trademarked a single word and set off, you know, and and rightfully so, uh, you know, a complete, um, brush fire, if you will. And RWA stepped up big time on that and they put legal resources on it and they, you know, got Amazon to, to not take down, um, books with that word in the title until an appeal has been, you know, heard. And, and I think that that's a very important sort of, um, move for a big organization like RWA to take. And, um, you know, obviously has greater resources available to it than we do. Um, and also, you know, from the macro standpoint that we're looking at, um, you know, the, the authors that were a affected by that, excuse me, would be a small number of our members. And so, um, obviously the trademark issue in general would be a macro level issue that we would be interested in, but, you know, individual authors who are caught up in something like that, they're better off going to a big organization that has the resources to kind of combat that, which we do not have. So, um, in that way, you know, I think there's, there's room for collaboration here, you know, and, and there's going to be limits to what we can do because we're not looking to, you know, do conferences and contests and things that bring in money because, um, who has the time to oversee that, you know, we're all running small businesses. So, um, so I'm trying to keep it narrow and focused and I didn't ask the, um, founding members to put up a lot of money because, um, I'm not going to be giving them a lot of value other than a place to come when there's an issue that everybody's involved in and how can we as a group address this? And that's our sole purpose. Um, my last question for you is about bookstores. Um, this is one of the uh, things that people are often very, for obvious reasons, preoccupied with in the book publishing community, and in particular in the indie publishing community. Um, and I guess two of the, the biggest things that sort of just are always kind of bleeping on my radar are 
what's going to happen to Barnes and Noble and what's what's going on with the Amazon bookstores. Um, and I was wondering if you just had any thoughts about one or both of those issues. So I really hope that Barnes and Noble is going to continue to do what it does because I think it would be a devastating blow to the publishing industry as a whole to lose Barnes and Noble. I think it would change the landscape forever. And I'm not, you know, I've been hoping and praying for a long time that, you know, Barnes and Noble is going to continue to do what it does. And especially like, you know, the Barnes and Noble press, which obviously is critical to a lot of indie authors. Um, we have a lot of readers on Nook and we cater to them. And, um, so I'm very hopeful, uh, continue to remain as you, I've always said, you know, optimistic. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I love and Amazon providing bookstores. I, you know, it's more places for people to engage with books and I'm all for that, you know, and books are not going away. I think it's been interesting to see that, um, I think there's been a slight resurgence in, in the print business, which is, is good to see. Um, I know it's funny cause my kids, like I said, they're 19 and 22 and they both prefer the print books to, to digital. Um, because I think they feel like they spend enough time on their devices and they prefer an actual book. And, um, I was on vacation with them recently and I'm like, look at them. They're toting books like the way we used to, you know, and, um, I was glad they were reading, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I don't think the printed book is going anywhere. Um, one of the big things in the indie world is we have big signings. Um, I actually just went to my first really big one because my son was still in high school. So I was like, oh, I'm not going to go on that circuit until I'm an empty nester, which I was this year. And I, I went to the first one and I could not believe the number of people that were toting around like, you know, um, like pull carts full of print books that they had signed at these events and the, we do huge business at the indie author signings. So I think there's still, there's still a huge demand for printed, signed printed books, authors, you know, signing their books. And, um, and I see that, like I sell, um, books direct from my website and I, I sell quite a lot of them and, um, sign a lot of books and I just don't see that going away anytime soon. I think the people who are hardcore readers are collectors of signed books. And I think that that will continue to be a big part of what we do. Well, thank you very much, Marie, for taking the time uh, to do this interview. I really appreciate it. We covered a lot of ground and I, I don't know about you, but I had a lot of fun. It was great. Thank you.